Conversations. Good day, everybody. Welcome to Med Conversations. I've got a story to tell you. And also Rahul and Becca here. Also us. Hello. Adam shuffles his papers on his desk and sighs discontentedly. It had been one of those mornings in clinic that had the respiratory physician wondering if he should have been a congenital heart disease specialist, a field where not an iota of guilt can be placed on the patient's shoulders, he ponders sourly. Most days, thinking along more deterministic lines kept Adam's head above the murky waters of misanthropy. But today, there seems to have been one too many 150 Pacquiao patients angrily (laughs) angrily demanding home oxygen. He opens the door to the waiting room and calls out, Wendy Miles, Wendy Miles. Adam scans the room looking for pink puffers and blue bloaters. But the only person moving is a young, pretty lady wearing a long yellow dress and bilateral sleeve tattoos. Wendy is at the furthest point possible from his door in the large waiting room and an expression of dismay comes across her face when she realises this. By the time she traverses the 20 metres, she is puffing more than Adam after his 5 kilometre morning run. Please, come in, Wendy, take a seat. As she sits down with some relief, Adam studies the anxious discomfort in her face and hopes this isn't what he thinks it might be. How are you today, Wendy? I'm okay, I guess, Doc. So your GP has sent a letter saying you've been getting more short of breath. I can see that's still going on. Yeah, I've been practically begging him to send me to a specialist for months now, but he's always just said it's anxiety. It wasn't until I showed him my elephant legs that he changed his mind. (laughs) While lifting up her dress to reveal some very edematous legs, she comments that she'd had to start wearing these long things because of how ugly her legs have gotten. It's ridiculous, Doc. I'm just so tired all the time. I can't even walk to my letterbox without getting short of breath, let alone front my band. You're in a band, inquires Adam. Gothic metal. Not that you'd know what that is. You'd be surprised, said Adam, thinking about last night's Iron Maiden jam sesh with his gastroenterologist best friend. Charming story. Yeah, it's pretty good. Mm. So what are the differentials that Adam, as a very well-regarded respiratory consultant, would be thinking of in this young lady with an increasing shortness of breath, fatigue, and leg swelling? What do you reckon, guys? What is, what's he most scared of? He mentioned he was worried about something immediately. What, what would that be? What's the elephant in the room Earthquakes. with the legs? <laughs> <laughs> Pulmonary hypertension, I think, is a respiratory physician. Mm. Any young person. Mm-hmm. But what are some other stuff that he needs to think about as well? Well, he sounds like he has a bit of a penchant for congenital heart disease. Yeah, yeah. It's probably, probably crossed his mind. Pulmonary fibrosis could always cause a bit of dyspnea in the young person. Nephrotic syndrome as well, the fluid mm. overload, and hypothyroidism is another young one. Young female, yeah. Mm. So if you were trying to figure out whether someone had pulmonary hypertension, what kind of uh, questions would you ask? What are the manifestations of pulmonary hypertension on history? I guess it can be a bit silent sometimes, but exertional dyspnea and fatigue. Mm. Um, so there's a WHO classification that they've ripped straight off the New York Heart Association. Group 1, no limitation of physical activity. Group 2, slight limitation of physical activity. Group 3, marked limitation of uh, physical activity, but still comfortable at rest. And then Group 4 is dyspnea at rest. So is that WHO classification a classification of dyspnea or of dyspnea secondary to pulmonary hypertension? Secondary to pulmonary hypertension. Okay, so it's quite specific. Very specific, yeah. Then there's some other symptoms you can get as well. Sometimes they get non-productive cough um, and more rarely hemoptysis, although that's kind of like a classic MCQ type question. Mm. And then you think about that's the manifestations of pulmonary hypertension and then the complication of that, the biggest one is right heart failure. So what's that going to give you, Rahul? 
Well, I guess you get all your typical right heart failure symptoms, which is the uh, peripheral edema, the hepatic congestion, the anorexia, mm. eleva- elevated GVP is a sign. Mm. Um, yeah. So the exertional chest pain mm. um, is another one, and that's due to subendocardial hypoperfusion of the right heart. And for extra points on ward round, you could mention that sometimes it's due to the left anterior coronary artery being compressed by the pulmonary artery. So Wendy has a lot of these symptoms, and so we're worried. We already know that she has dyspnea fatigue and lower leg swelling. She told us that. But then on further history, Adam finds out that she has chest pain, abdominal swelling, and has also lost her appetite. So Adam's taking the history. Wendy has all the kind of symptoms, but he also needs to start thinking about the causes of the pulmonary hypertension. But before we talk about those history questions, I thought we'd just take a break from Wendy and Adam and talk about the WHO classification, because it's really useful. So there's five groups. Group one, which is pulmonary hypertension, which is a lot of the types that you think of typically as kind of idiopathic pulmonary hypertension and some others. Group two, when it's related to left heart disease. Group three, when it's due to chronic lung disease. Group four, when it's chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And group five is basically the too hard basket. So that's pulmonary hypertension with unclear multifactorial mechanisms. So these are the five the classifications for the five groups that can cause pulmonary artery hypertension. So I think so. group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension. Mm, person, mm, yeah. yeah. So the criteria for that are where there's a mean pulmonary arterial pressure greater than 25 millimetres of mercury and where there's a pu- mean pulmonary capillary wedge pre- pressure of less than 15 millimetres of mercury. So what is that, Rahul? What's the mean pulmonary capillary wedge pressure? So capillary wedge pressure is a surrogate marker for left atrial pressure. And so you take the measurement by getting your catheter through the right heart all the way up into one of the pulmonary arteries, blocking that off and slipping the wire a bit further, measuring the pressure in those capillaries, which is obviously sort of upstream from the left atrium and gives you an indirect measure of mm-hmm. left atrial pressure. Also in group one, pulmonary arterial hypertension, chronic lung diseases must be mild or absent and venous thromboembolic disease, minimal or absent. So we can think of group 1 as basically just being when there's not one of the common secondary causes of pulmonary hypertension. Mm. And just on capillary wedge pressure, the reason it it should be normal is so that you're ruling out the left heart causing all that uh, high pressure in the pulmonary Mm. circulation. Mm. So there are still different types, kind of subdivisions of group 1 pulmonary hypertension. Idiopathic pulmonary really am struggling with this word, which is bad (laughs) on this particular podcast. Idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, IPH, as it will be from henceforth known, um, is is the classic one that we think of. It's actually extremely rare, two to three cases per million per year. And it's a young woman's disease, which is why Adam was so worried when he saw Wendy. And then there's heritable pulmonary hypertension. So lots of these patients used to be lumped lumped under idiopathic, but as we've known more about the genome recently, we've been able to associate it with specific genetic defects. Any other ones that are under group 1 pulmonary hypertension? So some drugs and toxins can cause pulmonary arterial hypertension or group 1 pulmonary hypertension. Um, And these drugs include uh, amphetamines, cocaine, um, St. John's wort. Mm. Do they know that for sure? Yeah, I think those are the possible ones. Um, But the definite ones uh, include aminorex, which was an appetite suppressant used in the early 20th century, and toxic rapeseed oil. don't know why I'd think that's a good idea (laughs) (laughs) to take something called toxic rapeseed oil but causes pulmonary hypertension. So some other ones, connective tissue diseases. So that's because the capillaries are obliterated and the arteries are narrowed. 
So systemic sclerosis or scleroderma, rheumatoid arthritis and SLE, so lupus. Congenital heart disease, and that's because there's a left-to-right shunt can eventually lead to Eisenmangers, which is classified under group 1 pulmonary hypertension. And schistosomiasis, to take ourselves out of the Australian Western medical bubble, is actually the most common worldwide cause of pulmonary hypertension. Up until the 20th century in uh, Egypt, they used to think that uh, schistosomiasis was a male form of menstruation, and they didn't really think much of it and didn't need to do anything about it. And they thought uh, blood in the urine meant you were more fertile. But what's actually going going on, your fertility isn't increasing. The schistome over can embolize to the lung and induce a granulomatous reaction in the arterioles, which is bad news for your pulmonary hypertension. So again, I think it's important to point out that all these things don't actually affect the pulmonary veins, just the pulmonary arteries, particularly with those connective tissue diseases that are mm. obliterating the arteries. So that's group one done. Let's move on to group two. So Beck, what was group two again? Group 2 pulmonary hypertension is when it's due to heart disease. So before, when we were talking about Group 1, we mentioned the pulmonary um, wedge pressure. So in Group 2, that is increased. So it's characterised by an increase over 40 millimetres of mercury. So basically, all the causes of heart failure that if you've listened to our other podcasts, we talk about in more detail. Pathophysiology, just back pressure. So pulmonary artery blood pressure is forced to increase to overcome the left atrial pressure. And then there's persistent pulmonary hypertension that develops uh, due to vasoconstrictive and vascular remodeling processes, creating an occlusive vasculopathy. Very common. This is probably the most common type of pulmonary hypertension. A study of 108 patients with dilated cardiomyopathy showed 26% of them had pulmonary hypertension on echo. Mitral regurgitation is a particularly important cause, identified in 76% of one group of 41 patients studied. So that's group two. What's uh, group three pulmonary hypertension according to who? So group three out of five uh, refers to the pulmonary hypertension caused by chronic lung disease, and it's also known as the hypoxic pulmonary hypertension. How does that work? Well, it's it's related to really severe lung disease, um, and eventually these patients can develop pulmonary hypertension, and it's multifactorial. So one one method is that the low oxygen levels through the hypoxic vasoconstriction response in the lungs causes all of those pulmonary arteries to actually constrict because they think, hey, we're not getting enough oxygen. This is a waste, and they're trying to balance the ventilation perfusion, right? So then that creates all these tight vessels and makes it much harder. Um, the pressure is much higher there. Another another mechanism is in some of these destructive lung diseases like COPD. They actually destroy their vasculature. And so that decreases the total cross-sectional area of the pulmonary vasculature, which increases the resistance um, and also leads to pulmonary hypertension. So there's a few mechanisms there. What are, what are the lung diseases that can cause this group 3 pulmonary hypertension? Yes, the main ones that everyone probably knows and is thinking about COPD, um, but also... Yeah. Out of left field there. Really? <laughs> no. no. COPD is very common. Sarcastic. Sarcastic is poor right now. <laughs> um, so COPD, fibrosis as well, and then combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema actually has a really bad prognosis. Also, obstructive sleep apnea um, mm. can cause that. And yeah, What comes after three, Beck? I can answer this one. Um, I believe that would be four. And what so rhymes with four? PE. <laughs> <laughs> so group, group four is when there's chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So this is actually one of the only groups, or it is the only group with a potential for cure because you can do a thromboendarterectomy and actually 
remove um, remove the thrombus, remove the cause of the pulmonary hypertension. Mm. So, so it works by the vessels just being narrowed by clots. And also these clots release substances that cause the vessels to constrict further. Up to 2% of people with PEs develop pulmonary hypertension, um, but only 50% of people that fall in this group 4 chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension have a f- history of PE. VQ scan is useful because it uh, distinguishes from small vessel pulmonary artery hypertension. Uh, but what's the gold standard test? The invasive pulmonary arteriography. So yeah. that'll give you an idea of whether you can actually do these endarterectomies where you pull out. Uh, apparently when you pull them out, you get these nice trees of just actually the whole vasculature. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty oh, crazy wow. looking. But um, So that'll tell you whether there's something big enough to do that or whether it's all just small stuff and there's no yeah. point going in there. And just just going back a bit, Darvo, you said that only fifty percent of patients with group four chronic um, with group four pulmonary hypertension have a history of PE. But that's the definition of group four, isn't it? So, are you talking about the percentage who have a history of PE that has been known about? Exactly. Yeah. So you might someone comes in with pulmonary hypertension, like doesn't have heart failure, doesn't have COPD. It's not a young lady. Maybe as chronic peers, you do a VQ scan, which mm. might give you some indication that that's the cause, and then you do pulmonary arteriography. Always okay. do your exercises on the plane. Make sure you're working your calves <laughs> and drinking lots of water. Um, so then group five will ignore largely. It's the too hard basket, which is pulmonary hypertension with unclear multifactorial mechanisms. Hematologic diseases fall in this, sarcoidosis, neurofibromatosis, Gouch's disease, glycogen storage disease. Splenectomy, myeloproliferative disease. Stuff. Stuff. Stuff is in there. So that's group one, two, three, four, five. So Adam, back to our respiratory Iron Maiden fan friend. So what question is he going to ask to figure out what might be a potential cause here? Unfortunately, there's no history of connective tissue disease, no rashes or joint pains, no congenital heart disease. She hasn't consumed anything with a dangerous-sounding name. Uh, No heart disease, no lung disease, and no previous PEs. So it comes up with nada. Next, being a good physician, he examines the patient. So what would you expect to find in Wendy? Well, it sounds like she's already in right heart failure just from the history, so mm. we'd expect to see some signs of right heart failure. Going back to those again, hepatic congestion, maybe tenderness of the of the liver there, um, swelling in the in the peripheries, an elevated JVP, uh, mm. and maybe even ascites if it's bad enough. What about some signs that are more specific to pulmonary hypertension? So, I suppose one of them would be on auscultation of the heart. There's obviously S1 and S2, S2 being made up of the closure of the aortic valve and the pulmonary valve. So the pulmonary, so P2 is the name of the pulmonary closure. P2 would be much louder. And I've actually, I've heard this on patients before where it's very, very obvious, even to a mere intern, Mm. um, where you can hear S2 very loudly over the pulmonary area, but you can't really hear it very loudly anywhere else. And that's because... P2 can be heard most clearly over the pulmonary area and you can't really hear P2 anywhere else, Mm. even if it is loud. So a loud P2. So that's because there's so much pressure on the pulmonary arteries that it just slams that valve shut. And the other thing is... In anger. In (laughs) anger. The other thing is that um, A2 and P2 are more widely split in pulmonary hypertension. Mm. So the pulmonary hypertension might be so severe that you start getting pulmonic regurgitation, and that's called Graham Steele murmur. We'll power name that one. (laughs) 
and then also there's some signs of right ventricular strain sometimes with a right-sided S3 gallop and uh, sometimes tricuspid regurg as well. Unfortunately, Wendy has all of these signs. Bad news. Bad news. What do you do next if you're Adam? So you've done a good history, a good exam. What's what's next? Investigations, I believe. Mm. And would, would you start off with pulmonary arteriography? Yes. That's <laughs> an appropriate method. <laughs> Why waste time? Um, so I think you have to start with the small stuff. And you've got to remember what you're trying to investigate for. So whether or not there is actually pulmonary hypertension whether there's an underlying cause of pulmonary hypertension and what the severity is and whether it's, you know, going to be responsive to certain forms of management. Mm-hmm. So that's that's your basis there. And the the humble ECG will be the first thing to start off with. Mm. And what might you see on that? You could see signs of right heart strain, so right axis deviation, right atrial hypertrophy, which um, is when the P wave morphology changes in such a way that Darvall will shortly describe. <laughs> <laughs> So the right, is that bifid? No, that's the P mitrali. So on the left side, that's bifid, but on the right side, it's just increase in amplitude. Mitrali has an M, so it's bifid, like a, it looks I like, like that. an M. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and then um, I, I guess right ventricular hypertrophy you and guess right ventricular <laughs> hypertrophy. I know, Good. and right bundle branch block. So it's neither specific or sensitive for right heart disease, which makes it a bad test, but you're going to do it anyway. Probably for baseline monitoring, it'd be really mm-hmm. useful as well. Chest x-ray is good. So you'd expect enlarged pulmonary arteries around the hilum if it's really severe. Pruning of the peripheral arteries, pruning of the batwing. Um, and also sometimes you can see an enlarged right atrium, which is gives you a prominent heart border because on an EC, on a chest x-ray, so that right heart border is mostly atrium, remember. And a right ventricle, which is uh, seen as a diminished retrosternal space on the lateral, because that's where you see the right ventricle. Yeah, the other thing about the uh, peripheral, uh, the the pulmonary arteries, which a radiologist taught me about, was uh, normally they have like that bat wing appearance. If you go and look at a chest x-ray, and when they become convex, so they lose that nice concavity bat wing, that's when uh, you should think about pulmonary hypertension. Mm. I always find that an easy rule to go by. Mm. So next test, echocardiography. Echo. So the main thing you're looking on an echo report if you're looking for pulmonary hypertension is RVSP, and what does that stand for? Right ventricular systolic pressure. Yeah, so that's an estimate of the pulmonary artery systolic pressure, which itself uh, is an estimate of the pulmonary artery mean pressure. Uh, and how, how, does, how do you figure that out on echo? That's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Uh, I would think that you would, and I think, I mean, I would read that off the page as <laughs> based on the amount of tricuspid regurgitation that the patient is suffering. So there's so much pressure in there that's busting back through the valve. Not so much the amount, but the velocity. Mm. How fast that, but everyone has a little bit of tricuspid regurg. Mm. And so depending on how fast that blood is going, it gives you an indication of what that pressure is in the pulmonary arteries. So 88% sensitivity and 56% specificity for pulmonary hypertension. Good for ruling and it out, not good for ruling it in. Yeah, and but one of the other things to realise is that even though everyone does have a small degree of tricuspid regurgitation, some people don't even have enough to be able to calculate the RVSP. Mm. Interesting. So it is a limited test, though. It's not quite sensitive enough to rule it out. 88% is pretty good, but I wouldn't kind of put my house on this patient not having pulmonary mm. hypertension. Mm. And it's definitely not good enough to quantify severity, but it's an accessible, cheap test. So remember, this is the systolic pressure, not the mean arterial pressure. And a systolic pressure of 
40 or so implies a mean pressure of more than 25. And if we think back to our criteria, our WHO criteria, a mean pressure of more than 25 millimetres of mercury is the definition of pulmonary arterial hypertension. That's your clincher. Mm. The gold standard test, pulmonary angiography via the right heart. So invasive but relatively safe as far as catheters go. Um, And it assesses pulmonary artery pressure, right atrial pressure, right ventricular pressure, and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. What was that again, the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure? Again, it's an estimation of left atrial pressure by wedging a a catheter all the way into the capillaries as far Mm. as it can. Mm. And so this is the test that's good for distinguishing patients that have left heart disease. So we know that they've got pulmonary hypertension, but is it because of their left heart or is it just in the pulmonary arterial circulation? And as we said, the wedge pressure is good at distinguishing that. If the wedge pressure is high, they've probably got uh, left heart disease as well, and that could be the cause of the pulmonary hypertension. The other good thing you can do on um, catheterization is you measure whether they respond to vasodilator medications, and that, as we'll talk about in a second, will influence what you choose. Uh, the other test you might do is for monitoring. So you know someone's got pulmonary hypertension. How are you going to check how they're going? Six-minute walk test is a really good one. Stress echo is another. And cardiopulmonary testing is the other one. Mm, the six-minute walk test is really nice because it's tied to some prognostic stuff as well. So basically how far they get in six minutes um, can tell you a lot about how long they're going to live. <laughs> it's the most important six minutes of their life. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to therapy now. So the conventional therapy for all patients is more targeted at the complications of pulmonary hypertension rather than modifying the disease itself. So what are you going to give for that? Diuretics, I've got a lot of fluid on board, you want to get that off. Oxygen, that's not surprising, they're having difficulty breathing. This is less intuitive, anticoagulation. Why would you give that, Rahul? Well, it seems, again, like I'm reading on the page here, that that these people are at increased risk of... uh, of thrombus due to the sluggish pulmonary blood flow and they got big right heart chambers from all the attempt to push out there mm. and so everything is just going a bit slower mm. there and they might even be confined to the bed because of their crippling dyspnea. Virchow would be losing his yeah, poo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just exploring it's a family podcast. from all the excretory <laughs> organs. Um, yeah, uh, and so, I, look, I was saying to Davor, I've never actually seen anyone on anticoagulation for pulmonary hypertension before, so I called him a huge liar, but he said there's a study that said there isn't great randomized evidence, but um, there is some observational studies that suggest that there's a mortality benefit there. So, so if you want to look like a real smart aleck like ward around, be like, why is this person not on a uh, Do sure, you want to kill them? Show up your consultant. So it's particularly important for these patients because, remember, four rhymes with PE and group four pulmonary hypertension is due to thromboembolic disease. So these guys, if they have a PE, it's really going to knock off their arterial circulation and make their disease much worse. So PE is going to be particularly dangerous in them too. I've seen some people doing the the VQ monitoring actually six weeks after someone gets a PE, a large PE, to see if there's a lasting defect there uh, because that can predispose you to pulmonary hypertension. Next one, digoxin. So the old foxglove improves right heart ejection fraction. That makes sense. Right heart's not working so well. And uh, because lifestyle comes last, exercise training is important as well. No, sorry. I'm joking. So it's <laughs> advanced therapy it's as really well. funny. <laughs> so advanced therapy. So these are things that are actually going to modify the disease process itself. Um, 
usually reserved for group one. Group two almost never gets that. That's the left heart. People almost never get it. And three, four, and five sometimes get it, but usually just group one. And it's important to remember when you're thinking about evidence for this advanced therapy, disease-modifying therapy, it's uh, mostly from people that come that have idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, not the other causes of group one pulmonary hypertension, or scleroderma-associated. Yeah, just remember that for all those ones like group uh, three and group two and group four, so the ones that are secondary to some other disease, often treating the underlying disease as your treatment for That's your a really good point, Rahul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of advanced therapy, remember we talked about the vasoreactivity test before. So vasoreactivity testing is important in figuring out whether someone should get advanced therapy. And basically, if a patient is vasoreactive, they're a candidate for calcium channel blockers. It can be either... Uh, dihydropyridines or non-dihydropyridines, so either diltiazem or amlodipine and other such drugs. This is interesting, though. It's important to realize that the studies that have shown that CCBs work are just comparing patients that are vasoreactive versus patients that are non-vasoreactive. No one's actually ever compared amongst the vasoreactive patients people taking calcium channel blockers or non people not taking calcium channel blockers. So it, should, in there somewhere. <laughs> so it could just be that the vasoreactive patients do better. But for now, we're still using calcium channel blockers in them. There's other advanced therapies as well. Uh, prostacyclin analogs, so prostaglandin I2 or PGI2. So they're vasodilators. So that's drugs like epoprostanol, tripostanol, iloprost. They've got a prost in them in case you didn't get the common thread there. <laughs> Okay, so so far we've talked about the calcium channel blockers and the prostacyclin analogs. There are two more groups of drugs that can be used in advanced therapies. The first of those is the endothelin-1 receptor antagonists, which is... uh, So endothelin-1 is a potent vasoconstrictor, which is implicated in the development of pulmonary artery hypertension. So these are the basant... Sorry, Bosentin and Ambrosentins of the world. I like to say Bosentin. Yeah, I said Bosentin as well. Just Bosentin? Because, no, I think it's not right. But it's <laughs> <funny. laughs> uh, the last class of pulmonary hypertension therapy includes uh, PDE5 inhibitors or phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors, which you've all probably heard about from their erectile functions. And uh, <laughs> is that too much? No, that's appropriate. Okay, that's appropriate. Sorry, kids. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and so basically pulmonary vascular smooth muscle or smooth muscle dilatation in general is mediated by CGMP, um, and phosphodiesterase normally breaks down CGMP. So you inhibit the phosphodiesterase, you increase the CGMP, you increase the size of your your arteries. Um, Or other parts of your body. Yeah, Mm. wherever it may be. Anyway, enough of that. What happened to Wendy? What did happen to Wendy? ECG showed signs of right heart strain. She also had a markedly abnormal X-ray. The echo showed normal LV function, um, and the hunt for other secondary causes was fruitless. No lung disease, no PEs, no connective tissue disease. She was not started on a CCB, uh, that's a calcium channel blocker, because of right heart failure, as per the CHEST 2014 Pulmonary Hypertension Pharmacotherapy Guidelines, Adam knows his evidence. Commenced on the endothelin receptor antagonist ETRA, Bosun Tan, because it's recommended if you want to improve the six-minute walk distance. Um, she was also started on tripostanol, which is an inhaled prostanoid, and uh, a confusion, continuous infusion of IV <laughs> epoprostanol, which is also a prostanoid, was tried. Unfortunately, the disease took its natural course, and Wendy died two years after she first met Adam. 
Mm. Sad. It's very sad. Mm. Thanks for listening, guys. Practice Thank you. your knowledge on the Quizlet. Mm. Thank Bye. you.